0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 23rd chapter, beginning with the first verse. Glory to you, O Lord. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is a messiah, the king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, He stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he began, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, Then he put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence, and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry?" Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified there Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And When all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. The Gospel of the Lord. You You may be seated. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we could not praise you enough on this Palm Sunday. We thank you for all that you underwent on our behalf. We thank you for the gift of faithfulness. We particularly thank you for the fact that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. We praise you God for this beautiful spring day you have given us for the occasion of Michaela's baptism for this somber remembrance of your suffering and death. We thank you for who you are and all that you do for us. We ask now that you would speak a word to us that is challenging and convicting, a word that is liberating and freeing, a word of hope, power, promise, transformation, and ultimately joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sermon text for today is not the entire chapter of Luke chapter 23, but we'll look at one verse today, and that one verse is verse number 46. Luke chapter 23, verse number 46. This is one of the famous seven last words of Christ from the cross. Those seven words come from all the four Gospels combined, There are actually three of the seven found here in Luke's gospel. Uh, But we will look at the last one, verse 46, which reads, Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. My sermon title for this morning is The Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus. The author that the Hebrew Bible calls Kohelet, the Greek Bible calls Ecclesiastes. And in the seventh chapter of that particular book of Holy Writ, Ecclesiastes, the author, traditionally regarded as King Solomon, intriguingly remarks... Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And perhaps more paradoxically and provocatively, better is the day of death than the day of birth. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Better is the day of death than the day of birth. The reason I say that is paradoxical and provocative is because the tone of this day, the original Good Friday in our text, is not one of joy and mirth. If you were to compare Christ's end with his beginning, his day of death with his day of birth, you would be stretched fantastically to arrive at such a Solomonic conclusion. At his birth, you see, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. But there is nothing cute and cuddly about the soldiers here casting lots to divide his garments on this day. The angelic host which appeared to shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night while bursting into rapturous song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill among peoples are now Some 33 years later, not only noticeably absent and silent, but they are replaced by a cruel and mocking chorus chanting a taunting refrain, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. If you are the King of the Jews, come down now from the cross and save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The end of a thing? Better than the beginning? The day of death? Better than the day of birth? There are no wise men or kings from the East bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh here at this painful scene on Golgotha's windswept hill. Only sour vinegar or wine mixed with gall, dubiously offered for uncertain purposes. There is no version of a Simeon or Anna present as there was in Jerusalem's temple at his presentation as a baby to herald the potential of this nascent, incipient human life with such resonant declarations as mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord which God has prepared for all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. Now, my friends, now, there is just... The silent suicide of Judas, his betrayer. The conspicuous absence of Peter, whose last words were, I do not know this man. And the chance of crucify him, crucify him by the crowds surrounding Pilate's residence. How can the end of a thing be better than the beginning? The day of death better than the day of birth when the sun itself refuses to shine for three hours. While the incarnate Son of God is executed in brutal and horrific fashion. While those nearby exhibit only bloodlust or profound grief and lamentation. I mean, no one is going home today amid multicolored lights and decorations to sip eggnog, sing carols, and open presents. Are they? How could one ever possibly compare a beginning of hope and promise and potential and excitement and enthusiasm with an ignoble, ignominious, despicable, degrading, and humiliating end and possibly arrive at the conclusion the end of a thing is better than its beginning and the day of death better than the day of birth? There is no hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah being victoriously and joyfully sung this day, as was the case three and a half months ago when we commemorated Christ's birth. In both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, Scripture records that Jesus, as He hung on the cross, cried again with a loud voice and breathed His last without divulging the content Of that last loud cry. Luke here fills in that omitted detail. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The older translation records, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Unlike Jesus' earlier cry of dereliction and abandonment in Matthew and Mark, wherein he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus herein quotes another psalm. This one, Psalm 31, and verse 5, whose context is more one of quiet and confident trust. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. A little later in that same psalm, a similar sentiment is echoed. My times are in thy hand. Eugene Peterson's The Message, Paraphrase, Translation of Scripture renders this verse here. Father, I place my life into your hands. While the contemporary English version breaks it all the way down in colloquial fashion, Father, I put myself into your hands my spirit my times my life myself i commit to your hands my spirit my times my life myself are in your hands O god god's hands my friends are strong hands and hands of deliverance god liberated the hebrew slaves from egypt in the Exodus, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God's hands are hands of provision and sustenance. The psalmist intones, The eyes of all look to thee, and thou givest them their food in due season. Thou openest thy hand. And thou satisfiest the desire of every living thing. God's hands are omnipresent, directional, and protective. The psalmist ponders wondrously, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, O Lord, thy hand shall lead me. Even there, thy right hand shall uphold me. God's hands are protected a shelter from the storm, a hiding place from enemies who seek to do us harm. Isaiah said, In the shadow of God's hand, God hid me. God's hands are extensive, extended, and salvific, even as they are beautifying and glory-giving. Because Isaiah also prophesied, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened such that it cannot say, And you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. You shall be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. God's hands are uplifting and honorific. Because Peter wrote in his first epistle, Humble yourselves therefore, beloved, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time God may exalt you. I once heard E.K. Bailey, that late Baptist pastor from Dallas, Texas, preach that God's benevolent and beneficent hands are where you want to be because they are the perfect hands to be in. To that end, he said, if you put a basketball in his hands, that is Pastor Bailey's, it wouldn't amount to much other than a poor shooting percentage. But if you put that same basketball in Michael Jordan's hands, it would be a done deal. Do you know why he asked rhetorically? Because it would be in the right hands. In that line and in that vein, I might add, if you put a scalpel in my hands, you'd likely get cut pretty badly. But if you put it in the hands of Johns Hopkins Pediatric Neurosurgeon Ben Carson, you'd experience precision-based restorative healing. You know why? Because it would be in the right hands. If you put a paintbrush in my hand, you might get some pretty rough coloring by the numbers. But if you put that same brush in Pablo Picasso's hands, you'd get some pretty subtle and sublime works of cubism and modern art. Do you know why? It'd be... In the right hands. If you put a pen in my hands, you'll get some illegible hieroglyphic looking scribbles that some have described as writing in tongues. (laughs) But if you put that same pen in the hands of Zora Neale Hurston or Aaron Magruder, you'll get some revealing and moving fiction and some biting satiric art. Do you know why? Because that pen would be where? In the right hand. If you put carving tools and raw material into my hands, you'd get some silly putty naivete which would compete with my four-year-old's finest work. But if you put them in the hands of Michelangelo, you'd get some breathtaking Renaissance sculptures like David in the Paida. You know why? They'd be in the right hands. When Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, cries with a loud voice, quoting Psalm 31 and verse 5, Father, into Your hands I commend my spirit. He is turning His spirit, His times, His life, Himself fundamentally over to God. He is acknowledging the One from whose bosom He has come and to whose bosom He now returns. He is turning over and committing and entrusting His life, His mission, His ministry to the right hand divine hands, holy hands, healing hands, loving hands, cosmos-creating, earth-forming, land and water-separating hands, hands of provision and sustenance, of omnipresence and direction and protection, hands of extension and shelter and salvation, of crowning beauty, and most of all, of glory. There is an old Native American proverb which states... When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries but you rejoice. When Jesus Christ became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made human according to the Nicene Creed, I believe He cried as a baby and the world rejoiced. I believe He cried cries of infancy while His parents, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, Simeon and Anna in the temple and creation itself in the form of Bethlehem's star all rejoiced. And I believe in the end, ultimately, in this last word from the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I believe that the world is crying, but he is rejoicing. The world is crying because they are beginning to realize that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home and his own people received him not, according to John's gospel. The world is crying here because they are looking upon him whom they have pierced and they are mourning for him as one mourns for an only child and weeping bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn, according to the prophet Zechariah. But I believe that Jesus knows that the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The day of death, indeed, better than the day of birth. And so he rejoices. He rejoices in a life well lived. A life of innocence, righteousness, purity and obedience. A life of teaching and Deliverance and healing and miracles and restoration, redemption and reconciliation. I think as he hangs on that cross, he recollects his baptism, his temptation and the beginnings of the Galilean and Judean ministry. I think he recalls the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. I think he remembers the 12 disciples, the 700 disciples, Jairus' daughter Lazarus, and the widow from Nain's son, all of whom he raised from the dead. I think that the embers of his head being anointed, his feet washed, dried, and kissed, and his own washing of the disciples' feet still smolder in his consciousness. I think, my friends, that Jesus is gathering together all the parables, the stilling of the storm, the walking on water, the feeding of the... 5,000 and then the 4,000. His own transfiguration, the founding of the church, the two great commandments, the embrace of sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. I think he gathers Zacchaeus and Nicodemus and Bartimaeus, the widow's mite, and that Syro-Phoenician woman's both faith and daughter, and he is turning it all over to God, his Father. He is entrusting all of it to his heavenly parent, along with the suffering, along with the rejection, along with his feelings of abandonment, thirst, concern for relatives and friends left behind, for those blinded by ignorance, for last minute repenters, and the satisfaction of a sense of mission accomplished. I think he wraps up his whole life in toto and gives it back to God. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Through the pain The agony and the sorrow, I believe in my sanctified imagination that the faintest semblance of a brief smile crossed his otherwise beleaguered body and joy, however momentarily, entered into his heart as he exclaimed, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I mentioned earlier that no one would be singing the Hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah today like they did just a few months back at Christmas. That's too bad. Because you see, Handel's Messiah actually tells the entire story of Jesus from birth to death to resurrection. It was actually composed for Easter, not for Christmas. And the Hallelujah Chorus itself, that which is most familiar to us, most famous, actually commemorates the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on that old rugged cross. At its premiere in Dublin, Ireland in 1742, the King of England actually stood during this part of the performance, beginning a tradition emulated by most even down to today. Hmm. Why don't you stand right now? King of kings. Forever and ever. Alleluia. Alleluia. Lord of lords. Forever and ever. Alleluia. Alleluia. And He shall reign. Forever and ever. He shall reign. Forever and ever forever and ever alleluia alleluia the hallelujah chorus amen